Greetings, adventure. Welcome to the D20 Academy podcast. I'm Shalu Kaneshiro, and this is episode 32, Monster Monday on the Drow. Hey guys, welcome to another installment of Monster Monday. Uh, this is one of the favorite episodes uh, that, that I do. It's, it's the one where I make on the first Monday of every month, and I use it to highlight and feature a really cool monster from D&D. Um, I kind of start with a brief history of the monster in past game revisions, kind of what inspired its conception, all that kind of stuff. I go into its appearance, its abilities, the monster's history, lore, culture, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, how to incorporate this monster into your games. Okay, and today is about one of the most famous monster races of all time, the Drow. Um, if if you've, you've probably heard of them already, if you're even a little bit familiar with D&D or even just fantasy fiction in general. Um, but if not, or you just want some more information on them, uh, then this is the episode right here to listen to. Uh, this is where I'm going to break down everything that has to do with them, uh, get you guys inspired, uh, uh, and help you out uh, if you ever think about using uh, these guys in your own game. Um, if you guys want updates on how the, the podcast is doing, what's going to be happening in the future, you want to have a say in all that kind of stuff, um, you can go ahead and follow me on Instagram at d20 underscore academy. Um, and it's also a lot of help as well if you um, have some friends or some people you know that, that like the game or trying to get into the game and pointing them towards this podcast can really help me out a lot. Um, I work really hard on this thing every week. Um, and, and just getting new listeners, getting new people to, you know, come to D&D and, and get inspired and learn learn more um, uh, is, is just, uh, means a lot to me. And, and my, my work being able to reach more and more people um, and, you know, being able to help DMs and players and, and stuff like that, uh, it means a lot to me. So with all that out of the way, let's get right into the draft. Okay, so let, let's just get started with kind of some, some brief history um, of, of the drow in, in the game and kind of its revisions over time, all that kind of stuff. So the drow um, technically appear in every edition of the game, though in first edition it's only that they are just mentioned. They don't have stat blocks or really any lore about them. Um, just really just described as evil elves who live underground. <laughs> That's basically all they get in the first edition. Um, now, society... Lore, all that kind of stuff about the Drow, was further developed in the Monsters Compendium Volume 2 in 1989 and the Drow of the Underdark by Ed Greenwood in 1991. Um, and then, of course, 2nd Edition and Beyond featured the Drow as monsters with stat blocks and also Drow as a playable race um, for PCs. Um, which is actually something really interesting, which I'm going to touch on a little bit later here in the episode, but um, Drow are one of the only monsters who have monster stat blocks, tons of different kinds of monster stat blocks, um, in every edition are really popular monsters, um, but are also uh, uh, characters, creatures that you can play as as a player as well. Um, Because, you know, you obviously can't play as a beholder or as a dragon or anything like that, but Drows actually can be monsters or players, uh, which which is kind of interesting. Uh, and I think also led to their popularity. See, drow are incredibly iconic, um, and they, by some, are considered uh, Gary Gygax's biggest and most influential contribution to the fantasy genre, second, of course, to Dungeons & Dragons itself. Um, studies also show that books with drows on the cover sell more than books without drow on the covers, meaning that fantasy fans love the drow, and they've only increased in popularity in recent times. Um... Now, something that you may know about, something that put the Drow on the map, really increased popularity, was the Legend of Drizzt novel series by the legendary um, fantasy author R.A. Salvatore. Um, it featured the iconic Drow fighter Drizzt, 
um, who went against the typical evil alignment of his people and became a famous hero of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, they're quite good books. I, I read almost the entire series um, about a year or so back. Um, and, and yeah, Jadris is a great character. And, and the drow and their society and all that kind of stuff is really, really detailed um, in the first three books um, of that series. But yeah, drow are really popular. I mean, even if you're completely unfamiliar with Dungeons and Dragons and you only know it by the name or a basic concept of what it is, but you've never played it or anything like that, you probably can still recognize a drow. Um, they appear in lots of different places in, in fantasy literature and lots of different fan art and all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of people like to like to draw a drow and a lot of people like to play drow and when they're, when they're drawing their characters. Um, so, so there's a ton of like drow, drow art out there, drow stories, whatever it is. Um, and so clearly people, people love the drow a lot. Um, and, you, and you'll see why in a second. They are a really, really cool race of, of creatures. Um, they're really cool monsters. Um, so let me just kind of get into more detail what I'm talking about here. Um, so drow appear similar in look and stature to regular D&D elves, um, but there are a few like stark differences. Their skin is ebony black, just like straight black, uh, even kind of ranging into kind of dark purple range. Um, and their eyes range from like red to purple, and their hair is white, like white or silver. Um, they're, they're pretty short for elves, actually. They only stand around five feet tall, and they have slender faces, long pointed ears, um, you know, kind of classic elf stuff. They typically wear clothing befitting their stations, like uh, heavy armor uh, if they're soldiers, or like studded leather if they're like assassins or scouts, or like chainmail and robes if they're priestesses or mages. Um, and these are usually like black or silver, uh, and they are detailed with like spider motifs and web designs. And you'll learn about why that uh, is like that in a second here. Um, so getting into kind of lore of the Jirao, um, what they're like, what their culture's like, what their society like. Um, they are elves that were banished underground by their other elven kin, uh, whether they be high elves or wood elves or whatever, um, for worshipping the evil god Lolf rather than the elf god Corellin. Um, drow are ruthless slavers, they build empires miles beneath the surface in the Underdark, and they brave the dangers of the Underdark every day. Um, now these empires that they build are ruled over by several drow houses, which are like a large mafia-like families that are constantly like vying for power. Now, the drow society is built around one thing, and that is Lolth. Their devotion to the Spider Queen is reflected in every aspect of their society. Um, so, for example, women are considered superior and always hold the place of priestesses of Lolth or the heads of the house. Males can only serve as slaves, soldiers, or mages. They can never attain uh, certain higher-up roles that the women can. Um, and that's because Lolth is a female goddess, and that's like one of her uh, tenets, is just that women are superior. Um, so as long as the drow serve Lolth and center their society around Lolth, women will always be considered superior. And men have... Uh, only a couple positions uh, that they can fill, but can never attain full power or, like, lead a house or anything like that. Now, drow also breed and raise giant spiders as pets and mounts, and they use spider mo motifs in all their designs. Um, that's because Lolth is the spider queen. She's the, she's the dark goddess of spiders and, 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 and uh, you know, darkness and evil and all that kind of stuff. Um, but her, her main motif is spiders and webs. And so because their society is built around Lolf, all their, their architecture and clothing and all that kind of stuff is, is mirrors that, including their, um, you know, that they raise uh, giant spiders as like pets and, and stuff like that. Now, Lolf actually resides in the Abyss, 
Um, though she's not technically considered a demon laid lord or lady, um, she is actually just con she is considered a goddess. Um, but she does reside in the abyss in a place called the Demon Web. Um, uh, and this like dark, horrible realm is actually a place where she can call Drow to. She can she can bring the Drow to the Demon Web and test them. Um, she pulls priestesses typically uh, and tests them in the Demon Web, and if they succeed. They come back to their society and they're rewarded with great power and influence and position. But if they fail, they're transformed into things called driders, which are drow, uh, but instead of legs, they have the lower half of a spider. So they have a, a body and an abdomen and eight legs. Um, driders um, are actually, they actually look pretty dope. It's kind of like a, like a spider centaur almost. Um, and they actually do have a step block featured in, in the monster manual. Um, but the Dreaders, um, even though they look really cool and are pretty cool monsters, um, the Drow hate them because it, it represents someone who failed to gain Loth's favor. And they are banished from society. They're treated as outsiders. Um, they, they cannot be let back in by the Drow, and they have to survive on their own in the Underdark. Um, but if you succeed the test of the Demon Web, you actually are rewarded greatly. Um, so it's kind of like a it's kind of, it's kind of like a risk. Either turn to a Drowder and get banished and probably get, you know, get killed out in the Underdark by other various monsters, or be rewarded and get great power and influence and position within the Drow Society. Now, Lolf loves power, and she teaches her elven followers, these Drow, to obtain power under any circumstances. Um, now, this has led to a dangerous and bloody web of rumors, conspiracies, and assassinations as the Drow vie for a higher position in the latter. Um, owning slaves... Uh, whether they be mindless troglodytes or captive surface elves, is a sure sign of prestige and power. Um, power, influence, position, that is really what is the driving force behind all the drow and all their thinking processes. Um, definitely when it comes to the women. Because men can only attain a certain position, um, they're probably going to want to try to vow for the highest position they can possibly get. But even then, that's only like the, the head of, of the house military or, or something along those lines. Or, or a favored consort of the queen. Um... Or of of the of the the house matron, um, but the women can you know possibly attain really high uh, higher up positions in in the the priest priestesshood of Lolf, or even become a matron of a house, which is like the highest possible position you can attain. Um, and because Lolf, uh, it teaches the drow that that power is what matters, and to, and to try to obtain power under any circumstances, um, they are constantly trying to. Um, climb up the the ladder of power and obtain more power, um, even if it is harms others. Um, whether they send an assassin towards someone above them so they can obtain their position, or or plan conspiracies or try to frame the the person above them for heresy, whatever it is, um, Loth loves that, and and she teaches her her people her drow um, that that is all that matters and to do it do whatever it takes. Um, to get power, and this makes Drow Society a very dangerous, intrigue-based, um, bloody uh, uh, society, um, which is, of course, opens the doors for really cool adventure uh, plot lines and such, um, but if you're a Drow yourself, that's not the best existence. <laughs> uh, that's 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 kind of a, a rough existence there. Um, also, on the note about slaves, like, Drow love to show off their power and influence as well. If they have a high position, they want everyone to know it. And owning slaves is kind of a a a uh, a big one there. If you have lots of slaves, um, 
or, or a certain kind of slave or whatever, then people will like recognize you as having lots of power and influence. Now, typically their el their, their slaves, sorry, the drow slaves will be some other creatures in the Underdark, whether it be, uh, you know, Duergar, like, uh, you know, underground living dwarves, or Darrow, underground living gnomes, um, or even just like troglodytes, or, or something like that, or like big, like, kind of lizard creatures, or whatever it is, uh, trolls, um, anything like that. The, the, they can take those as slaves as well, just as other monsters within the Underdark. Um, but another one is, uh, uh, surface elves, or, or just surface creatures, whether they're humans or dwarves or halflings. Um, so even though the drow live underground, they've lived in the Underdark for hundreds or even maybe even thousands of years, they are accustomed to the darkness, they can see very far in the darkness, um, and they, they despise the sunlight. The sun hurts them, it hinders them, um, really big setback, um, for them to be doing anything while in sunlight. But sometimes it will go to the surface at night to raid settlements, um, to to collect slaves, or just to harass the, the surface elves. Um, like how the, the, the surface dwarves have a big rivalry with the Duergar, the, un the, the, the underground dwarves, and they are constantly just fighting just because of, a, you know, an age, ages-long uh, disagreement and rivalry. Sometimes it's not even just for, like, resources, it's just fighting just to harass the other... Uh, race of people. Um, the same thing is kind of true for the elves. Um, the the drow hate the the surface elves. High elves, wood elves, it doesn't matter. They hate the surface elves who serve Corellan rather than Lolf, and will sometimes just go up there just to harass them, just to just to attack them, raid them, take their supplies, kill their people. Um, most of the time, these raids are actually to take slaves uh, because humanoid slaves are obviously um, much more useful than than things like troglodytes or trolls. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a common thing for uh, the drow to raid surface elf settlements um, or, or tribes or whatever it is to collect slave, slaves or just, um, you know, just, just, try to, just try to hinder them uh, because of their, their ages-old rivalry. Um, now, there are drow renegades, right? Exiles um, and, and people born with the innate morality of a good-aligned person. Um, drow who grow up in Indra society, but don't agree more morally with, with how the society is run and the rest of their drow brethren. Um, and these people can eventually lead a life on the surface, um, but they are, are very rare. Um, however, typically if a PC is playing a drow, right, because drow is a playable race, if someone's playing a drow as their character, they're playing a character like this. Someone who was banished from their society, their drow society, or is in exile, or they ran away, um, and they just, you know, they have an innate morality that goes against the society they were brought up in. Um, they're actually more good-aligned than evil-aligned like their people. Um, there is a lot of controversy um, in in the D&D community about, like, Drow as a playable race and playing a good-aligned Drow character. Um, there's, you know, a group of people who are just like, hey, Drow are really cool. They just, they look awesome. They're just badass. I want to play a Drow. I like the concept of, like, a a renegade drow who, like, is trying to do the right thing even though it's against the evil alignment of his people, uh, who's kind of in exile and stuff. And there's another another group of people who are like, no, it's canon, drow are bad, evil people. It's just extremely rare for a drow to ever come to the surface and live life as an adventure. Um, that kind of only happens in, in the instance of, like, Drizzt and the Legend of Drizzt series. Um, but n it's, it's no one should be allowed to play drow. 
um, because it just doesn't make sense narratively. It, it breaks up the, the, the you know thematic elements of the game or whatever. Um, so there's you have these kind of two different sides of the issue. Um, it's up to you to figure out what, what you want. Um, you know, most likely you'll just be like, hey, you can play a drought, drought, we're cool, just, you know, you have to come up with a reason of how your adventure on the surface, um, and not, you know, living like an evil, horrible assassin person, uh, underground in draft society, um, but, you know, otherwise, yeah, it, it's up to you. Some, some, you know, fantasy fiction purists and such, uh, veteran players will, you know, don't want people to be playing drought or anything like that, just because it's just, they think it, they don't like it, drought are just evil underground elves, they can't be adventurers or anything like that. Um, so this kind of debate has been going on for, for a long time. So it's just kind of for you to figure out where you stand. Um, but let's get into 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 their stats here um, and into, the, into the, the mechanical pieces of a drought in 5th edition. Now, in 5th edition, a basic stat block is given for a regular drow. Um, but because the drow have a society with individuals of different skill sets, there are also different stat blocks uh, for the different kinds of drow that are provided in the monster manual as well. Um, these will be discussed in the variant section um, after I just talk about the basic stats of a drow. So the basic stats of a drow uh, in 5th edition, they're medium, humanoid, neutral, evil. Um, they have basic AC and HP for their challenge rating, which is 1 fourth. Um... And they have average ability scores across the board. Um, they just have slightly higher dexterity and charisma than their other ability scores, but otherwise it's just completely average, like 10, 10 to 12. Um, they have dark vision up to 120 feet, um, and also they can only speak Elvish and Undercommon. Um, all the all the drow in, in, in all the stat blocks of drow uh, provided in 5th edition, whether it be from the Monster Manual or Board and Kindness Tome of Foes, um, can only speak Elvish and Undercommon. And I have an issue with this. I have talked about this before in other different Monster Mondays or just other episodes. Um, I don't like it when my monsters can't speak common. Um, obviously, every character that you make, every PC you make, will be able to speak common, right? Every race you can choose from can speak common. You're going to be speaking common mo like 99% mo like of the game. Um, in rare cases, will it matter that you can speak Elvish or or Dwarven or Primordial or whatever? Depending on, um, depending on the campaign setting and, and how your DM likes to run things, uh, there it may come up more often that it matters what languages you have. But for the most part, like like 98% of the time, common is how everyone communicates, and um, everyone in the party can obviously speak common, so that's how they can communicate with each other and with NPCs. Um, and when you have intelligent monsters who can't speak common... It makes it so that not even all of the party can communicate with them, and I, ju I just don't, I don't like that. I love having my monsters be able to communicate with the party, um, you know, whether because I like during combat, like conversations during combat and taunts and, and uh, you know, battle cries and all that kind of stuff. Um, I love them to be able to discuss during combat, but also outside of combat, right? I mean, you're not probably going to be always, ex ex you know, encountering the drow inside of combat. You know, they have this whole big society and stuff that, that you're, the party might have to infiltrate or whatever it is, and you're probably going to have role-playing encounters and such with Drow. Um, because they are intelligent creatures, they're elves, they can, you know, they're learned, they can speak a language, they're not like a, a bear or anything. Uh, I just think they should be able to speak common, just be able to communicate with all the, all the people in the party. Um, it just makes it so there's not a weird barrier when it comes to role-playing. Uh, it just makes it so that 
um, you know, it's just role playing is just more drawn out when like you have to communicate through the one person in the party who can speak Elvish or the one person in the party who can speak Undercommon. It's just it's weird, and I just don't like it. I think every monster who should be able to be you know intelligent and speak intelligently should be able to speak common so that they can communicate with the party um, during combat and all that kind of stuff. It just makes the game more interesting, and having this weird language barrier just doesn't really add much to the game, I find. Um, it just kind of prolongs the game, makes it, drags it more, uh, and, I, and I just don't really like that a lot. Um, giving them additional languages outside of common, though, 100%. If the drow want to be communicating secretly while in the presence of the party, and they can want to use elvish or undercommon, like, that makes sense. That's totally fine. That's cool, and maybe only one of the people in the party can understand what they're saying. That's different, but just having a basic role-play encounter, basic conversation, conversations during battle, uh, I just like it best when, when, when the monsters could be able to speak common. Of course, this is up to you and what you want to do, but if I were a dungeon master and I want to use Drow in, in my game, I'm just going to give them all the ability to speak common, um, just, just to make everything easier. Um, because I care really more about like the story and, and the role-playing of it than like the, the intricacies of, of how it works thematically. Um, Drow also have basic elven abilities, like Fey Ancestry, and the ability to innate spellcast uh, simple spells, like Darkness, Dancing Lights, stuff like that. Um, a couple of the higher level ones can, can cast like Levitate on themselves. Very simple uh, uh, innate spellcasting things that they probably won't use much uh, in combat, more, more outside of combat. Um, and then, of course, they have Sunlight Sensitivity. This is also a feature that uh, Drows get if you choose to play them uh, as a playable race, um, which means they have disadvantage on attack rolls and perception checks that rely on sight while in sunlight, um, which is a big reason a lot of people don't even play Drow in 5th edition because of this. Um, you know, if you're an adventurer, most of your adventures are probably going to be on the surface, um, and a lot of your fights may be in sunlight, and you're going to have disadvantage on all your attack rolls. Well, in sunlight makes you very weak uh, in combat. You're only, like, at the level of everyone else in the party when you're underground or fighting at night. Um, so, this on the sensitivity makes sense. Um, some DMs, like, if someone's playing playing a drow as their character, just re remove this ability just so it doesn't hinder them. And so that they can just play their character uh, as a surface dweller, and it's fine. Um, but it does make it should make sense for the, the drow monsters. Um, because using this sunlight sensitivity against them is something that the party can be able to use and should be able to uh, figure out and then implement uh, in their attacks against drow. If they figure out that, oh, the drows are sun uh, sensitive to sunlight, then one of the spellcasters casts daylight at the beginning of, um, you know, the battle, then they, you know, the, all the drow in the battle are at a disadvantage now. Um, and that's really cool, and that's like a tactical thing that the party can pick up and learn. And it's a weakness of the drow that can be used against them. Um, so I think you should keep sunlight sensitivity into the stat blocks of the drow. Um, but depending on how you want to play and how harsh you want to be, um, if someone, if one of your players is playing a drow, you may want to remove the semi sensitivity feature, um, just so they don't, you know, have just a bad time most of the encounters, uh, that they fight in. Then, the basic drow has a short sword and hand crossbow attack. Very simple. Except, the crossbow attack, um, after dealing damage, forces the target to make a constitution saving throw, or become poisoned for one hour. If they fail this con save by five or more, they are knocked unconscious. Um, so they don't fall to zero hit points, they still have their hit points, they just fall unconscious, and it takes another creature in action to wake them back up. Um, I have mixed feelings about this. 
I think that this crossbow, this poison crossbow attack is pretty powerful. Um, first of all, um, being poisoned for one hour, that is kind of a big deal. Um, now, this drow is only challenge rating one-fourth. So, like, you can be facing a drow at first level, um, and, like, you'll have a fair fight. Um, you know, you can be finding multiple, the party can be finding multiple drow at, at first level and be able to, like, win, because they're only challenge rating one-fourth. Um, however, <laughs> at first level, getting poisoned for an hour is not fun. Um, the poison condition, if you're, if you're not familiar, gives you disadvantage on, like, basically everything. Um, like, attack rolls and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, this, typically when you're, when you're poisoned by some kind of effect, whether it's from a spell or from, a, like, a monster attack, you get to continue making constitution saving throws at the end of your turn, and if you succeed, then you end the poison condition. But with this attack, you're just poisoned for an hour if you just fail the upfront constitution uh, saving throw. Um, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, you can't, you have to just wait out the hour for the poison to be gone, or, you know, get rest, lesser restoration or something like that cast on you, or drink some sort of, like, potion that gets rid of your conditions. Um, you can't continually make the saving throw at the end of each of your turns to try to end the poison condition. Um, so that's pretty strong, which means that if you get hit by one of these and you just fail this constitution saving throw, um, for the rest of this combat, for sure, and maybe even any other encounters you have in the next hour, you're having disadvantage on all your attacks and all that kind of stuff. Um, dexterity saving throws and all that, which uh, is is kind of a big deal. That puts you at a big disadvantage. Also, failing this this constitution saving throw, which the DC is 13, by the way, by 5 or more, um, which means getting an 8 or lower, you fall unconscious. Um, and someone has to use their whole turn, basically, to wake you up. That is very strong, definitely for a first or second level party who might be facing these 1 4th challenge rating uh, drow. Um, that just puts someone out of the fight. That may they may have them skip their whole next turn. Um, so this crossbow attack is actually pretty powerful. Um, it also deals an average of seven damage, which is, which can you know down a a first level wizard in one hit uh, in some circumstances. So you know uh, I, I think this is something you may want to shift a little bit if you're going to be throwing drow at the party when they're in the very early earlier levels. Um, because they have a pretty high chance at the early levels to be saving this constitution saving throw. And getting poisoned for an hour, or even falling unconscious and being poisoned for an hour, is a really rough time, and can actually lead to a PC death, like, pretty easily. Um, so if you are running these, these 1 4th, uh, challenge rating drow, these, these just regular drow stat block, um, and throwing them against a first second level party, be careful with this hand crossbow attack. You may want to change it or alter it a bit. Um, maybe make the saving throw repeatable at the end of each of their turns or something like that. Um, because this can really turn the tides uh, of a fight like really, really quickly. Um, I mean, there's definitely a chance that if the way the dice roll, um, you know, when the drow act on initiative, they knock out like every single person in the party. Uh, and that's basically like a TPK at that point. Um, so, yeah, uh, this, is a, this, is pretty, this is pretty powerful. So you're going to want to have to keep an eye on this. Um, of course, once they're, like, kind of 5th level and up, they're probably going to be succeeding most of this, this Constitution Save through most of the time or whatever, so it's not too much of, of an issue, and it's, it's a pretty balanced attack. Okay, let's talk about variants. So, like I mentioned previously, Drow take on many different stations in their society, um, and so the various variants of Drow are the different kinds of occupations. 
Stat blocks for elite warriors, mages, and priestesses are provided in the monster manual, while stat blocks for arachnomancers, favorite consorts, house captains, inquisitors, matron mothers, and shadow blades are all uh, included in Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, um, which is one of the, the Dungeons and Dragons supplements. So let's start with elite warriors. Elite warriors are guards, raiders, and overseers, and they're just like a more skilled version of the typical drow. They are challenge rating 5 rather than 1 fourth, and they're just essentially better versions of the drow stat block. They have higher armor class and, and hit points, and their attacks are better. They can make more attacks in a single turn, they have a higher chance to hit, and they deal more damage with their attacks. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty basic, um, just like a challenge rating 5 version of the challenge rating 1 fourth uh, typical drow stat block. Mages are primarily male drow uh, and are skilled spellcasters uh, who don't have the build of fighters. So like I mentioned before, drow don't have a lot of um, uh, male, male drow don't, don't have a lot of choices when it comes to what their occupation can be because they can't attain the higher levels that females can. Um, if their body is kind of built for like fighters, um, then they typically become guards, elite warriors, things like that. Um, if they're more, if their bodies are not really built for that, and they're more uh, attuned to like, uh, you know, they're wise or intelligent or something like that, they more point towards becoming mages. Um, now, the mage stat block is challenge rating seven, and these drow are considered tenth level spellcasters. Uh, they have a ton of spell slots and just some classic wizard spells, just like just a classic wizard drow. Um, and they also have the ability to attempt to summon a demon once per day. Um, I didn't really talk about this before, but um, the drow uh, have a big connection to demons. Um, obviously, the god, the, the goddess they serve, Loth, uh, dwells in the abyss where all the demons live. And she has her own realm, the demon web, um, in the abyss where tons of demons live. Um, and so the drow can have a connection to demons. Uh, they might try to summon demons uh, to get a deed done or to serve as their slaves or to, you know, act as, as a guardian or, or something like that. Um, in fact, Yoklals, um, I believe I'm pronouncing that correct, Yoklals, um, are a shape-changing, uh, kind of demon that they're also found in the Monster Manual, um, that are like the handmaidens of, of Lolf. And these, uh, kinds of demons can take the form of a drow. Um, so typically lots of drows believe that the drows around them, uh, their mentors or their, their, their matron or some, someone like that is actually a Yoklal that has change their shape and is spying for Loth to find you know heretics or anything like that people who aren't obeying Loth's commands and so drow um, are always careful about what they do in front of other drow just in case one of them is, is a yaklal um, you know it's a, a, a demon handmaiden of Loth other demons also kind of serve Loth in different regards uh, and there's even creatures called dragloths dragloths are provided in the Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes book the, their stat block is um, they're kind of these big, four-armed, feral drow-looking creatures, kind of like a drow werewolf, almost. Um, and this, the Dregloths come about when a drow has a child with a Glabrezzo, uh, which is a big, scary demon. Um, so there's been, like, multiple instances where, like, uh, priestesses will, like, summon a ton of demons and then, like, you know... Uh, have children with them, and then, like, in just this weird, like, revelry celebration of Loth's favor or whatever. It's weird and creepy, and the drow are just kind of scary people. Um, but Dregloths come of that, which are these weird drow werewolf kind of looking guys. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, drow have a, a pretty big connection 
to, to demons um, because of, of the goddess they serve. And so mages and a couple other uh, characters can, can uh, summon, attempt to summon a, a demon. Um, which can be a really cool moment in, in the middle of, of a battle or an encounter when the drow uh, enemy begins to actually try to summon a demon and succeeds and like summons a new crazy chaotic enemy into the battle. That's, that's always really cool. Okay, priestesses. They are challenge rating 8 and are exclusively female drow. Only female drow can attain uh, the position of priestesses of Lolf. Um, now, they are also considered 10th level spellcasters, but their spells are more cleric than wizard ones. Um, and they also wield a snake whip, um, a whip with a bunch of snake heads, um, which is actually quite powerful um, if they ever use in their attack. I mean, I mean, typically in combat, they're going to be casting spells, but in the chance that they make an opportunity attack or something, they can attack with this snake whip, and it's actually, it's actually pretty strong. Um, and these uh, priestesses also have the ability to attempt to summon a demon uh, once per day. Okay, so those are the stat blocks from the things in the monster manual. Uh, now getting into the ones in Warden Kanan's Tome of Foes. So Arachnomancers. Arachnomancers are challenge rating 13. And they're kind of like uh, warlocks. Mages are like wizards, priestesses are like clerics, and Arachnomancers are like warlocks. They have the ability to change between drow and giant spider form, or cast a bunch of classic warlock spells. And they have pact magic. Um, so they cast spells in the same way that warlocks do. Um, the weird way that like spell slots and stuff works, like that that you know how, how warlocks cast spells, rather than typical uh, spell casting like like clerics, wizards, bards, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and they also have the ability to speak with spiders, um, which is pretty cool. So they're one of the more powerful spell casters of the Drow, um, and they also have the ability to turn into a giant spider, which is which is really cool. And their like abilities as a giant spider are also pretty powerful. Um, so it, it's it's not uh too crazy that they won't even be casting spells or they might just turn into a giant spider um they have a ton of versatility in their stat block their arachnomancer is probably my favorite draft stat block um because they're able to like turn to a giant spider and attack up melee or cast a ton of really cool warlock spells um i i just i, I really i really like uh the the way that uh draft arachnomancers work and i really like their stat block and, and the versatility of their options um so they're pretty exciting to run in combat for sure Okay, next are favored consorts. These are like the attractive male drow, priestesses, and matron mothers taken as consorts. Now, in the book, in Mordenkind's Tome of Foes, they're explained as easily disposable, and they're only valued for their beauty or tricks. Um, but the stat block is challenge rating 18, and they are crazy powerful wizards. Um, I, I don't fully understand... Um, why favorite consorts are so powerful um it's a little confusing to me because the way that they describe them are just like attractive male and uh you know who are chosen by priestesses or matron mothers as consorts whether because of their beauty or because you know they actually do have some power and some magical skills but not as much as challenge rating 18 so i'm a little confused um because they seem like they're more of like a boss uh than like a side little enemy in a fight where the main enemy in that fight would be like a priestess or the matron mother that these that these consorts serve um yeah they're really strong and i don't fully understand why um but uh yeah they're, they're, they're pretty cool they kind of mix spell casting with weapon attacks um so they're, they're they're pretty awesome um but they're very strong and i'm a little confused why they're so strong because the way they're described does not make them sound like they should be challenge rating 18. But whatever. Uh, that's the favorite consort. 
Uh, next are drow house captains. Now, drow house captains are typically male drow, and they uh, are the ones who lead a house's military forces. Third challenge rating 9, and are just kind of stronger elite warriors. So at the weak end of the spectrum is just the typical drow stat block, the challenge rating 1 4th. Uh, stronger than that is the elite warrior, challenge rating 5. And then stronger than that is the drow house captain, um, which is challenge rating 9. So they have high armor class, high HP, high, you know, really good attacks. They can make lots of attacks during a turn, and they have a high chance to hit, and they do lots of damage. Um, just like a strong fighter, a strong uh, drow fighter. And But because they are captains, they also have the ability to be able to, like, command um, their allies to take a couple different, like, actions and such. Um, so they kind of serve as leaders on the battlefield. Um, but yeah, that's, that's drow house captains. Next are inquisitors. Inquisitors are assassins and spies, and they are challenge rating 14, I believe. Yes, 14. Um, they have some powerful cleric spells. Um, the, the, you know, they're not super crazy. They're considered a 12th level spellcaster. They have some cool, um, kind of, you know, spiritual weapon, harm, banishment, bane, cure wounds, what whatever. Um, this, uh, like, cleric spellcasters. Um, and then also they have death lances, which are these powerful necrotic weapon, uh, weapons that like sap the life force of their victims when they attack. Pretty cool. Uh, Inquis Inquisitors are awesome. They're rating 14. I, I think they can only be women. I'm not completely sure, but they're, you know, assassins, spies, th th those kinds of characters. Um, and they also have the ability to be able to discern when, uh, someone is lying, which is a small little ability, a little feature but can, you know, come to play once in a while uh, during role-playing encounters and such like that. So Inquisitors are, are pretty cool. Um, and, and I like that they have the option to be casting these spells or be attacking with their Death Lance. Um, so yeah, I like Inquisitors. Okay, next are Matron Mothers. These are, of course, the heads of the house. Um, they are challenge rating 20. They're the most powerful drow um, stat block. Uh, they are 20th level clerics. Um, so they have tons of cleric spells all the way up to, you know, they have all the way up to ninth level spell slots. Um, and they wield demon staffs, which, um, are some pretty cool weapons that, uh, can, they don't do a lot of damage, but they can, uh, frighten the creature they hit, um, which is always a, a really cool thing to be able to do. Frighten is a really cool condition in combat and, and can turn the tides quite quickly. And they can also attack with a tentacle rod. Yep. A tentacle rod. <laughs> um, that is, I guess, like a staff with a bunch of tentacles on the end. Uh, once again, this does not do a lot of damage, um, but they, if they hit, they like impose some kind of thing on the uh, attacker if they fill it a, a constitution saving throw, like their speed is halved, or they can't use reactions, or whatever it is. Um, There's a weird little effect that kind of hinders their movement and capabilities during their turn. Um, so that's pretty cool. Once again, they'll probably be using their spellcasting most of the time uh, during combat, but if they ever need to make an opportunity attack or something like that, they'll attack with their demon staff to try to frighten an opponent and deal more damage, or the tentacle rod to try to uh, impose some kind of uh, disability uh, uh, debility on them. Now, Matron Mothers are also legendary creatures, so they do have some legendary actions, uh, like the ability to attack with their demon staff, um, or uh, like cast a spell, um, and uh, they can also compel demon uh, with their their legendary actions, like like see, force a demon they see to be able to attack someone else. Um, and so that means yes, they have the ability to summon a a demon. 
Um, uh, I believe they have. Uh, okay, nope. So most 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 of the abilities to summon a a demon that Drow have have a percent chance, typically like thirty percent chance to summon a demon. Apparently, Drow Matron Mothers, uh, looking at the stat block now, can just do it straight up once per day. No no chance. They can just do it. Um, so that that's pretty cool. And then they can compel this demon to do stuff with their legendary actions. Uh, they have a couple other like little abilities like uh, magic resi resistance and such. But other than that, that's the Drow Matron Mother. Okay, then finally there is Shadow Blades. Drow Shadow Blades. Um, they are kind of the ultimate stealth assassins. They kind of act as mercenaries. Um, they are challenge rating 11 and they have the ability to like teleport between shadows. Take out enemies with their powerful shadow swords. Um, they're, they're pretty strong fighters uh, and you know. They, they can be a pretty cool combatant. Um, there are obviously lots of different variants uh, for the Drow in 5th edition. Lots of different stat blocks, ranging from challenge rating 1 fourth all the way up to 20. Um, and I, I really like that. I really like that a lot. Um, it means that you can run an encounter with Drow. You can run an adventure that involves the Drow at kind of any level um, in, you know, that, that the party is. Um, because, you know, early on, they'll just, they'll just face the, the easier drow, and the kind of the bosses of those fights will be, like, elite warriors or mages or priestesses, um, maybe even, like, drow house captains, and then later on, kind of mid-level, they can be facing, like, regular elite warriors just on, you know, instead of, like, the, the, the classic one-fourth drow, um, be fighting, like, inquisitors and such, and then when they get even higher level, they can finally face the drow matron mother, shadow blades, all that kind of stuff, um, so I, I really like that that there's a ton of different challenge rating uh, scales between the different drow, so you can really run a drow adventure at any level. Um, so I, I think that's really cool, and I like that a lot. And I think they're all varied enough, and they have some cool, unique abilities um, that, um, you know, running combat with them will be exciting and interesting, uh, depending on what kind of variants you choose, like Inquisitors, Arachnomancers, Shadowblades, whatever it is. Okay, now I want to talk about campaign integration. How do you take these really cool monsters, these drow, and put them into your campaign? Now, drow are super iconic, and they're very thoroughly developed through tons of books and guides. Now, because of this, there is a plethora of lore and story hooks to choose from and put into your campaign, making the drow a very easy monster to integrate. Um, they, of course, fit well into any Underdark adventure and can serve as cunning and devious foes rather than the classic mindless monsters of the Underdark. Um, the Underdark is a classic, iconic um, environment to run D&D adventures in, uh, going underground, and there's tons of monsters uh, that are made specifically for the Underdark. Um, I mean, like, 25% of the creatures in the Monster Manual are Underdark monsters. Um, there's tons of really cool things in there, uh, like Mind Flayers, one of my favorite monsters. Um, that's what I did the first Monster Monday actually on. Uh, if you haven't seen that episode, go ahead and check the one out, one out after this one. Uh, that, one that one's really cool. Uh, Mind Flayers are really cool monsters. Those are uh, essentially exclusively under Dark Monsters, um, plus the Drow. Um, but most of these monsters look kind of like mindless things like trolls or troglodytes or cave fishers, um, things like that. Um, and the Drow can kind of serve as more like intelligent, cunning uh, uh, Underdark uh, enemies instead of just kind of the mindless beasts. Um, so that's really cool. Um, of course, their highly detailed and structured society can, I mean, honestly, it can open the doors to a whole intrigue-based campaign where the party plays as drow from a single house trying to climb the power, la power ladder, undermine the other houses. Um, this is probably uh, a campaign that has been played in many different houses by many different people, 
Um, just because so much detail has been put into the Giraffe Society, and there's so much information on it from all the different novels and, and books and modules and rule books out there, um, it's just such a great uh, place that's well thought out and, and thoroughly developed. Uh, and really, it's just a great setting to run an intrigue-based campaign in. Um, where everyone plays a drought, and, you know, from 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 a house, and they're trying to like increase their power and, you know, solve mysteries and kind of take out the other matrons and all that kind of stuff. A whole campaign can also be based around that, so that's really cool as well. Um, and a campaign set in the Underdark or that heavily featured the Underdark could also have the Drow as the campaign's main antagonist, um, and that would work very well. Um, drow can definitely serve as main antagonist or like a single Drow matron mother or whatever. Um, they, they, they are, they are fantastic at serving as main antagonist. Um, they're also quite fun for even just random encounters in the Underdark, like a raiding party of drow, or a hunting drow party, whatever it is. Um, but they also serve as great, uh, campaign antagonists, or like, uh, uh, the, the main villain of, like, a single plotline or adventure as well. Um, however, the Underdark is a stuffy, uncomfortable place. Um, players... I found don't really like to be in the Underdark for very long. They like being out on the surface, being able to travel to different continents and regions and, and different cities. Uh, and the Underdark can kind of feel kind of restricting. And this atmosphere is obviously something that can, you can use to your advantage to create a really ominous kind of stuffy feeling on, on the party. Um, but players don't typically like to be in the Underdark for very long. Um, so if your ca campaign isn't about that underground life, um, it may be an annoying if the Drow would like the main campaign villains to have your party continually travel down into the Underdark to deal with the Drow. Um, just because, unless like your campaign is specifically like set in the Underdark, everything's about the Underdark, you're going to be playing in the Underdark the whole time. Uh, a lot of players don't really like to be in the Underdark for very long. Um, Underdark is a great place for just like a single adventure, right? Like couples like couple sessions in the Underdark doing an adventure down there. Um, obviously, uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, environment for that. But having to continually go down into the Underdark and such um, can be a little annoying and, and be a little uncomfortable for the players. Now, in my home campaign that lasted a couple years uh, that we finished a couple months ago, um, one of the PCs in the party was a renegade drow who left his home in the Underdark and became an adventurer on the surface. This is what I was talking about earlier, kind of those people who want to play drows who are adventurers on the surface, who kind of had different moral standing than their, other, than their city that they grew up in and stuff. Um, I had no problem with this. Um, I'm okay with my, my players playing Drow if, if they want to, um, but you know, it, you know, it, it's up to you and, and your, your, your playgroup if you guys are okay with people playing as Drow. Um, now I was able actually to weave in the storyline, um, that they were playing on, plus his background, so that they had to travel to his old home, the old Drow city he grew up in, to find an at, to find a, a certain item and information. Um, now this city was, like, under attack by demons, and the storyline was more focused on, like, one that was about demons and gods that was already going, um, rather than, like, the drow themselves, um, but they still had a great time going through the city and fighting dark elves, um, but we did miss out on the cool social, uh, societal aspects of the drow, um, because the city was kind of, like, under attack by demons and stuff, and it was more like a stealth infiltration mission rather than, like, a thing where, like, you know, they navigate the bureaucracy of the drow and all that kind of stuff, uh, which is really cool. Because the storyline that we were on at that point was more focused on the, on the demons and, and the gods themselves, and the Drow City was just kind of vessel for that adventure, for that story. Um, uh, I did yes to use a ton of these cool Drow stat blocks and such, so it was a lot of fun. Um, but we didn't really explore it, uh, the aspects of the Drow Society and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's my personal experience with the Drow. Um, so I have played with them for sure. Uh, one of the PCs was a Drow. I've used a lot of these different stat blocks. Uh, I really like the Drow. They're really cool. 
Um, and obviously, there's so much information on them. Whether you read the Legend of Druids books or the War of the Spider Queen books, um, or you know whatever, Drower just are really cool. They're really awesome monsters, and they have a lot of potential uh, in a lot of different aspects. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. Uh, this one was a lot of fun to make. Uh, I always like doing Monster Mondays, uh, one of my favorite parts of the month. Um, I just there's so many really cool monsters in D and D, and I love to be able to tell you guys about it. Um, hopefully you were inspired. Hopefully, uh, as a dungeon master, maybe you uh, you know want to use these these guys in in your next adventure or in your next campaign. Uh, hopefully this helped you, uh, you know, inspired you and made you want to look further, explore these these monsters a little bit more. Uh, that's really awesome. Once again, if you want to keep up with the podcast updates of what's going on and other stuff that we're doing here outside of just the podcast. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram at d20 underscore academy. And of course, telling your friends, telling your, telling your playgroup, uh, telling, telling the people you know that, that play D&D or people you want to get into D&D about the podcast is really a lot of help. Um, uh, but other, other than that, guys, thank you so much for listening and have a great week. Mm-hmm.